Imagine a world without letter grades or GPAs. So I, I have a confession to make. I had a very unhealthy relationship with grades. I was obsessed with them. In high school, A's were really the only acceptable grade for me. I mean, A plus, if I could get it. And I did end up as the valedictorian of my class of about 300 people. My classmates and I, I think we saw grades as this sorting mechanism telling us who is, quote, best at school. And in my school, I won. Now, this might seem like I'm bragging. And okay, maybe I am. I may have still a weird relationship with grades. But back then, the stakes were high because I had this really specific goal in mind. I wanted to get into an Ivy League college. Why the Ivy League? Well, because they were the hardest to get into. So I figured they must be the best. There were some people around me who thought this was an impossible dream, including my guidance counselor. She essentially said, don't get your hopes up, kid. But I believe that if I worked hard enough, I could get into my first choice, Princeton University. And I figured the way to do that was by getting as many A's as possible. So this was my experience as a a middle-class kid in a small town. Grades were the ticket out. But for our purposes today, I think it's worth asking exactly what that grading system was doing. Because I know that I was not always interested in learning for learning's sake. This was a game, this grade chasing. If there was extra credit, I was going to do it for the points. That game and the rules of that game can affect different students in different ways. And it can even become a barrier in a way that I found surprising. That's the case for Catherine Cueva, a 20-year-old in California who's the first in her family to go to college. She recently finished a two-year degree at a community college, Cypress College, and looking to transfer to a four-year university. And I applied for three schools, UCLA, UC Irvine, and Chapman University, And Chapman University was my top choice, and I got into all three. Her first choice, Chapman University, is private. And it's by far the most expensive option. And tuition is very high over there. I believe this year was $53,000. And I received a merit scholarship. However, the scholarship only covered half of the tuition. So her scholarship had this string attached. She'd have to maintain a high grade point average once she started at Chapman to keep those scholarship dollars flowing. If she took that deal, getting high grades would be the only way she could stay at the university. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my goodness, I can't believe I got in. This is such a great achievement. But what happens if I drop below that GPA requirement? What is the GPA requirement? It was 3.5. And I had a 3.95 in community college. But since I know it was a private institution and that academics are much more rigorous there, I did have that feeling of what happens if I don't meet the, the requirement for the second year or even the first after the first semester. Then what happens? The 28000 that was left that I had to pay, or 23000 was still a very high cost for my family. The merit scholarship would have helped a lot, but I was still worried and stressed about having to meet that GPA requirement. I'll admit, at first, I was kind of thinking, okay, that's fair. Wouldn't this motivate students like Catherine to work hard? And she's clearly a great student, right? So why is she worried? Well, maybe it all makes sense if the grading system is a fair measure of academic achievement. And I'm a person where when I'm doing classes, 
I take them for the academic enrichment. But a problem with the GPA system is that it's not very consistent, if that makes sense. There's no standard as to what a 4.0 GPA looks like versus a 3.0 GPA looks like. And that has many factors that tie into that. For one, it depends on the student's schedule, what their social life looks like or what other responsibilities they have outside school. If you are a parenting student, if you are a working student, um, or you just have you know, other jobs or responsibilities, you may not be as dedicated to your studies and that may cause you to have a lower GPA because you can't study because of all your other responsibilities. In addition, there's classes that students take because they're easy. You know, there's word of mouth and they're like, oh, take this class for an easy A, take this class to boost your GPA, take an AP class because, you know, even if you get a, a B, that's still worth like an A in a regular class. And so you kind of have students trying to take the easy way out and saying, well, I'm going to take all these easy classes because they're required for my degree, but I don't have to do a lot of work. I would say that you can't necessarily put the word fair with GPA in the same sentence. In other words, most of the complicated factors of Catherine's life as a student, from the tough classes that she chose to take to any challenges that she had outside of school, would be ignored in favor of a single number, her GPA, the combined numeric total of her grades. Again, she had a 3.95 GPA at her community college. But when she considered that her GPA alone would be used to assess her eligibility to keep that scholarship at Chapman, for her, that was too risky. So she gave up her dream of going to Chapman. And this fall, she started at UCLA. Is this the right way to do all this? Is our system of grading students and tallying up those grades into what becomes the single number, the GPA, is that fair? Are there other, better ways to think about academic achievement? Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, a weekly look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, the managing editor of Ed Surge. This is the fourth of a six-episode series called Bootstraps that we're co-producing with our friends at the journalism nonprofit Open Campus. We are unpacking popular narratives about who gets what opportunities in America and wondering how it could all be different. It's worth going back in time again to look at how this idea of grades got started. And to do that, you have to go way back to the mid-1800s to a British psychologist named Sir Francis Galton. He was Charles Darwin's half-cousin, and he was reportedly a child prodigy, reading Greek and Latin at the age of five. And he was obsessed with this idea of figuring out which people are smarter than others. And his views, let's be clear, just don't hold up to today's notions of fairness and equity. You know, Galton in particular is one of the bad guys. That's Todd Rose, a researcher who has looked into the history of grades. He wrote about it in a best-selling book, the end of average, how we succeed in a world that values sameness. You know, usually I'm pretty sympathetic to like, listen, people in their context and, you know, the, the, you know, like I don't like dragging them forward and holding them to our moral standards. This guy is just one of the bad guys, right? Like he's the father of eugenics. Um, he He's living in England and he's watching things like poor people get the right to vote. And he's thinking this is going to be the end of 
You know, he's an, he's an aristocrat. He wants to preserve that way of life. Apparently, a popular notion back in the mid-1800s was that being average in things like physical and mental abilities was the ideal. It was good to be average. But Galton wanted to set the gold standard as being as far above average as possible. He sought to measure how much better than average some people were. He even invented a series of statistical techniques that we still use today that focused on what he called the law of deviation from the average. So he, he literally created the idea of percentiles. He, he invented aspects of correlation, um, regression. All these things that we take for granted were made up, and he made them up, no kidding, precisely so he could separate the best from the rest. And it's always about the belief that there's inherently better people than other people. And our job was to find those people. And Galton literally had an artificial selection strategy. It's terrifying to read his writings where he's like, we can do this better than nature. We can select. He literally wanted to use his methods to pick women who he thought were good looking and were, were the fit and pay them just to have children. And then he was going to, and he thought he was really generous. He was going to pay the people who he didn't think should be reproducing to voluntarily sterilize themselves for the good of society. It turns out Galton wasn't that interested in the subject of education. But he had some disciples who built on his work who did. One in particular. This whole thing gets taken up by a guy named Edward Thorndike, among others, but Edward Thorndike's the father of educational psychology. And he's going to do more than anybody in our history to set us on a path of standardization. Thorndike was an American who spent most of his career at Teachers College at Columbia University. There was even a building at Columbia named after him. Just last year, though, the university scrapped the name Thorndike Hall in response to public pressure in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd. The reason for the name change? Thorndike's views are now widely considered racist, sexist, and anti-Semitic. He, he made a lot of money. He wrote some of the first standardized textbooks. He invented some of the first standardized tests. Um, and, but what, what people forget about Thorndike, and, and, I th- and I think you have to hold people accountable for the things that, that they actually professed and what their intentions were. He hated the idea of high school for everyone. He thought that people were innately, there were just people who could not be, they did not have the mental ability to do this. And we should just be trying to, as fast as possible, select people um, get them out of the system if they weren't capable and, and use our limited resources on the people who literally could, could be great. Um, and some of, the, some of his contemporaries at the time, they would say things like, you know, one gifted kid is probably worth 10,000 mediocre kids. And, you know, uh, Gassell, who, who was a real proponent of kindergarten, literally believed kindergarten was supposed to be the Ellis Island of intellect is what he called it that this was the first place we should start sorting people as fast as possible. So the entire system is built on this assumption, and it may not have been entirely untrue then, that we have limited resources, we've got to start educating more people. How do you do that? Well, one way you could do that is if you believed everybody had something to contribute, you would start to think about how you design a system at scale that could do some of this development of everyone. Their view was, no, obviously, given the work of Galton and social Darwinism, there are innately better people, innately worse people. There are smart kids. There are dumb kids. There's a lot of mediocrity. Our job is to 
develop objective measures that allow us to differentiate those people, right? And they thought they were doing this in the name of the efficiency of the system. Before these guys came along, grading as we know it was not widespread. In their early days, the first U.S. universities followed a model used by Cambridge and Oxford, where students attended lectures and then had weekly meetings with a proctor to answer questions until the proctor determined they had mastered enough of the material to move on. If prospective employers wanted to know about the performance of individual students, the proctors would write letters of recommendation. It was all deeply personal and tailored to each student. It wasn't until the late 1800s after two centuries of American higher education, that we see the first recorded instance of letter grades at colleges, at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. And in that early grading system, E was the worst grade, signifying failure. There was no F. Thorndike and others like him, they pushed an idea of efficiency and standardization. But they knew that there were some holes in their argument. They recognized there was one major problem, Because if we're honest, every student is actually different in how and what they learn from a class. Individuality is a huge problem. A huge problem. That's Todd Rose again, talking about Thorndike. Human beings are more like patterns, and patterns can't be ranked, right? You need one number to be able to rank people using the Galtonian math, right? So so individuality is a huge problem. If you think that each person is distinct and that distinctiveness matters you're kind of stuck, right? You can't do the ranking and sorting the way that they wanted to. So he writes, like, while he's credited with all this other work and it was really consequential, I actually think his most pervasive influence is a book he wrote called Individuality. And in it, he converted individuality into individual difference. He basically says, yes, all of your distinctness can be understood based on how you compare to other people. So he convinces a generation of people that comparison to the average is the same as human distinctiveness. In other words, rather than admit that the idea of ranking and sorting left out much of what's distinct about people, Thorndike argued that he was all about capturing distinctiveness, which for him could be boiled down to a number of how far above or below average someone was at some set measure. He did a great job convincing us that that's how we should see ourselves, and we're stuck with that today. I wondered, actually, did people push back back then about this standardization of grading and education? Oh, yeah. Listen, anyone that had a humanist bone in their body disagreed with this idea of treating people like widgets. The problem was, it was twofold. One, because you had people like um, like John Dewey, right? John Dewey was a f- like fierce critic of this. Um, you had other folks that, who really were like, like even... Um, you had folks like Charles Eliot, the president, the, one of the early presidents of Harvard, who was like, this is nonsense. Let's try to, like, be more flexible. Let's, you know. The problem was you were facing two headwinds if you were more of a humanist, more of a, a, a person-centered view of, a, of schools in a democracy, like what that should be. The first is the economy was changing from out, out from underneath us, right? Like, it, was, it had become industrialized, which that was all based on the same underlying assumptions, right? That was brought into the workplace by uh, Frederick Taylor, scientific management. So in in a weird way, if you saw education as preparing you for work, it kind of made sense that it, it looked a lot like what was going on in the factories and stuff like that. That's the first thing. The second thing is 
up until recently, if we wanted to acknowledge human distinctiveness, the truth is, is that had a real squishy vibe to it, right? It's qualitative. It's um, really, it anchored in moral tradition, a lot of religious tradition, I think rightly, right? The dignity and worth of an individual, their distinctiveness. But we didn't have the technology or the know-how to turn those ideas, even though they were correct, into tools, right? So what do I do? If I believe this, what do I do? And look, I think people even today face this. If I agree that intelligence isn't one number, I can say that, but at the end of the day, all the tools at my disposal, including tools that are tied to accountability and resource allocation, are all rooted in this idea of an IQ test, right, among other things. So so with the rise of these standardized tests and the underlying mathematics behind it, which are not wrong for for the right purpose. They're just wrong if you're trying to understand an individual person. Um, so they had those two things, an economy that, that was, was consistently aligned with their views, and they were able to convert their ideas, as bad as they were, into tools people could use. So maybe you disagree with Todd Rose, and, and you love grades and GPA. But to do that, you've really got to believe that there's enough standardization and consistency in the system to make these marks somehow valid. But to students like Catherine Cueva, who we heard from earlier, it often does not feel consistent or fair. It depends on the professor. You have professors that are easygoing and you have professors who are very strict. You have teachers who are focused more on memorization rather than demonstration. And different schools and colleges even have different methods for calculating GPAs. Listen to Catherine and you'll hear someone who is both deeply skeptical of grading systems and also deeply familiar with their details. The game might be rigged, but she's playing it, even now that she's enrolled at UCLA and thinking ahead to grad school. This was a huge shock to me when I found out, but at my community college and at most colleges, a 4.0 is from an A plus, A, or A minus. But at UCLA, a 4.0 is A plus or an A, and if you get an A minus, that's a 3.7, which is kind of a big difference when it's only a few percentage points. It's two percentage points from 93 to a 95. And what does that make you, when you learned that, what was your reaction and what, what, what concerned you about that? I was highly concerned at first because I will be taking honors courses over there. So not only are those a little bit more tough, but um, a lot of stigma around community colleges. They say, oh, well, that's junior college. Like, they're not going to be, they're going to be easier classes. They're going to be, which wasn't really my experience at all. I did have some tough courses that really challenged me, especially during COVID and trying to learn it all online. But in addition, with that 3.7 GPA, my ultimate career goal is to attend law school after obtaining my bachelor's. And the GPA aspect is a crucial factor to where you get in. Now for UCLA, I believe that their law school is about a 3.7 or 3.8, which still means all A's. But at the same time, you have a lot of universities who require like at least a 3.5. And when you're taking honors courses, that makes the your perspective on your grades entirely different. There's a lot more stress on it 
there's a lot more importance on your grades. And so that's why I love when I have professors that focus more on that demonstration aspect, because I feel like I'm better at showing how I know the concept or showing how I learned in the class rather than just telling them, this is everything that I've memorized within the last 12 weeks of the semester or of the quarter. I can definitely relate to this looking at the technicality of point totals. Many teachers and professors say things like, try not to think about these grades, just focus on learning. But to get opportunities, especially if you can't afford to pay full price, these details, they can be make or break. Reporting this series has brought back all these memories for me about the stress that I once felt about grades. And so I decided to try to answer a question that I've always wondered about my college search. How much did those grades that I fought and scrapped for really matter? I still remember vividly that day in my senior year of high school when I got an envelope in the mail from Princeton. The first paragraph was a single word. Yes. I got in. What I remember less well was the process of presenting myself, grades and all, for evaluation. A few months ago, I sent Princeton a formal request for my admissions file. And again, they said yes. They actually had to dig the folder out of an off-campus storage facility and scan the contents to email it to me. I admit I was nervous to open this. I invited over the editor of this podcast series, Rob Bingley Myers, to talk through what Princeton sent me. I had asked Rob to read through it all before I did. Were there aspects of yourself that you knew they were going to be, like, evaluating that you were worried about? I knew, you know, it gets back to scores on things. I knew that my SATs were not that good compared to the facts that were out there about, like, how good you needed. But what was the part of your um, application that you were confident about? I was the valedictorian by the end. So that felt like a good, that felt like a very promising thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I guess I was already very aware that a lot of valedictorians don't get into a place like Princeton. Um, and so it was a very, it was, I just didn't know what was enough. I mean, what's interesting about the SAT scores versus being the valedictorian and really just grades, like you were talking before about being obsessed with grades, is that it seems like, Grades are supposed to be a reflection of both your intelligence and your effort. Um, whereas the SAT score is supposed to be a reflection of just your intelligence. You know, it's, it's supposed to be a, like a purer assessment. And so the idea that you would like get perfect grades, but not perfect SAT scores, it feels like some sort of uh, like, I don't know, like the implication is like you're not as smart as you seem to be. Yeah, I, I think that was it. I think they were going to figure out, I was afraid that they were going to figure out that I'm not as smart as people were telling me I was because it didn't add up. Yeah. Um, I mean, I sort of, I identify with that because I, I also did not get the best SAT scores. I'm sort of nervous to tell people what my SAT scores were. Like, it feels like it's still a judgment. Like, it's a judgment I will carry with me to my grave. I am somewhat, like, I've kind of thought about, like, I'm going to probably have to reveal these on this podcast. And, you know, yeah. I, I think people out there, some people might judge. It's kind of amazing how all these years later, these numbers, like SAT scores and GPAs, still feel so important. 
So what did Princeton make of my application back when I sent it in all those years ago? Okay, well, do you want to open it up and look at it? Yes. Okay, I just clicked. So yeah, I, I, okay, so I just clicked on the file and it's a PDF and it looks like a yellowed application. Oh, it is, oh, it's filled out by hand. That's interesting. I just remember having typed things. Oh, wait, there's both. Um, part two is typed. Part one is just written out in my handwriting, my bad handwriting. All of my application was there, including details about my high school and the name of some alumni who'd interviewed me. I had always remembered my essay as being strong. In fact, I've long thought that might have been a big reason I got in, despite my low SAT scores. I wrote about a moment I spoke at a local county commission meeting about an environmental issue. But Rob's day job is to teach writing here at a local college in St. Paul. And he was, well, he was underwhelmed. I'm going to spare you and myself um, reading that essay, but just trust me, it's awful. I'd, I would not say that this is the reason you got into Princeton. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for No, that's so great. I think that's really great. Um I just, yeah. And I think as I was reading it, I was like, well, clearly, like, he's the valedictorian. They didn't care, you know? Like, they weren't that concerned with... Like, that's kind of where my thought about these written answers don't matter that much came from. I mean, they don't even seem like very good questions, like, that they're asking you to answer. What was the question? Hold on, let's see. Um, tell one story about yourself that would best provide us either directly or indirectly with an insight into the kind of person you are. It just seems really, like a really bland kind of nothing question. And then some of these other questions. So they have these short form questions. The questions about your, like your favorite movie. Did I put Dead Poet Society? Is that, was that a favorite movie? I'd say it was up there, but most prized possession is life. Oh, wow. That could be read <laughs> differently than I meant it. <laughs> yeah, that one stuck out to me too. I was like, wow, that's intense. Um, the next question was, what are two or three traits you most admire or respect in others? Again, I think a terrible question. You said humor, versatility, and you said patience because it's a virtue. I said because it's a virtue? And you said, uh, I wholeheartedly believe that patience is a virtue. Oh my God. I... I don't know how I got in, and I, I'll stand by that patience is a virtue. <laughs> Favorite time of the day, 11, 17 a.m. Some of these answers are probably what I thought they wanted to hear. And favorite section of the newspaper, comics. Um, okay. That's not going to impress people at Princeton that you read the comics. But you're being right. authentic, I think. I, I'm sure it was. I know I read the comics. So... Yeah, but knowledge is power is my favorite quotation. Wow, doesn't seem like I read very much. And who even said that? <laughs> I'm not even sure. <laughs> Probably a lot of different people in non-interesting ways. I do. I I have to say, I think your your best answer to any question on this whole application is that your favorite time of the day is 11, 17 a.m. Like, to me, that is the thing that says the most about you. Like, if I was reading through this as an application, I'd be like, this is a real person because they gave that as an answer, and that's funny. I'm, I'm really glad that something broke through in my, in my attempt to, like, get my hand up in the pile of applications and thousands and thousands they got. I guess my, my overall question 
or one of my overall questions is, um, what are you looking at this as a document? What does it say to you about like the way merit works or the way, uh, we, we think about merit? I wanted, I, for probably forever, I've wanted to believe that this process was authentic, right? That there was some, like, that this process was almost like foolproof in a way. Like there was a part of me, at least for a long, I'd say a long time in my life, like that wanted to believe that there was some like, that this was measuring merit, that this set of things that we're sitting here looking through in this PDF was like, uh, almost like a scientific, you know, litmus test that you stick it in the the solution and you pull it out and there's the answer. And if you did that all day, you know, you'd get with a bunch of things you, it would be uh, legit. And it just, it looking at it now, it just feels more random. Yeah. More like a lottery. I mean, you don't get into the lottery if you don't have great grades, right? Um, I mean, the fact that you're a valedictorian, like that's the reason you were in the lottery. But once you're in the lottery, it's just kind of dumb luck. Now, there weren't any notes from admissions officials that I kind of hoped would be in there to, to give us a clue here. But after going through it and talking to Rob and realizing my SATs weren't good, my essay was pretty weak, my short form answers were all over the place. That pretty much leads me to think that my grades really did matter in my getting into Princeton. If I had maybe not gotten one of those A's in a class, I might not have been the valedictorian and might have had no chance. There are plenty of people these days, though, that are asking, is this grading system the best way to think about student achievement? Todd Rose, he's among those calling for a reset. And he notes there are precedents for not seeing grades or GPAs as the final word. Let's go into whether we let someone be a surgeon. So first of all, by the way, we don't trust medical schools to credential, right? We, we, give, we give mastery-based assessments where if everybody who takes the test passes, they get to be a surgeon. If nobody passes, they don't get to cut me open, right? Like it does there is not like every year there's 10% who get to be surgeons. That would be the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like you would, you would have, sometimes you would have a bunch of people who should have been surgeons who just didn't get the opportunity arbitrarily. And some years you're going to let people who should never have held a knife be able to go and harm people. And yet now let's go to education. What he means is that doctors don't get to become doctors just by getting good enough grades. They have to pass a credentialing exam. They have to show that they know it. In most schools in this country, when students pass a class, they don't have to demonstrate mastery of the material. They just have to get the right grades to keep going. Even if they don't deserve it. Even if they are not qualified, they, are, they did not reach a level of understanding by any stretch, they will get the A and they will move on. And as long as I don't fail, I'll get the C and I'll move on. Like it, What we really want to know is the system should be striving to ensure that every kid reaches high levels of understanding and competence on things that we think really matter, Right. I, I, want, I want every kid in this country to have mastery-level understanding of civics because I have to live in that world, right? They're, like, I have to live with their voting choices. I have to live with, like, their, their activism. And so I don't care if you go, well, I got a C-minus in civics. Well, move it on. No, not move it on. Like, you, you got to understand this. It's a little hard to imagine, but grades and this whole system that we've been talking about, 
could actually be on their deathbed. At least according to the people I talked to. To get a sense of what might come next in a future without grades, I reached out to Arthur Levine. In the past, he's served as president of Teachers College at Columbia University, the same university where Thorndike once did research. So that imagine if your GPS worked the way the grading system does today. You only got readings from your GPS, say, every hour. So you set out from wherever you're going, and an hour later, your GPS says, you're now, you were about 20 minutes away before, and maybe three miles, you're now 35 miles away, and an hour and a half. And recalculating. That's not really useful. I mean, the benefit of a GPS is that it tells you now. It lets you know what's working and what's not working. For him, the current GPA system is like a GPS device that barely functions as intended. With grades, it's like we only get to see where students are on the map every few weeks. Because grades weren't actually designed to help students learn. They were designed to rank and sort them. But Arthur Levine wants to change that. We're going to have the technology to work with students and help them to learn in real time. That is... Instead of waiting for the end of the term in which we can only tell students whether they passed or failed, what we're going to be able to do is help them along during the way to enable them to learn what we want them to learn, not penalize them for not learning it. And just to be clear, do you imagine a world in which the idea of A, B, C, you know, D and F is just something people are like, that's a relic that doesn't people don't use it anymore? Yeah, I do think that's coming. I think that we're going to see a whole bunch of things disappear as we move toward outcome-based education. One's the current grading system. The other is the Carnegie unit, which is how we measure progress. He's referring to standards colleges use to determine how many credits a college course is worth. Those are usually based on time spent in a classroom, often referred to as seat time. Seat time. It's a measure of seat time. Well, that's not going to work in a world in which all we care about is what did you learn? Not what were you taught, but what did you learn? And what it means is that all along, evaluation is formative. It tells you what you haven't gotten yet or what you misunderstood or what you... Every evaluation you take is formative until the final formative evaluation, which is summative. It says, hey, you got it all. You achieved the outcomes. I think that's where we're heading. And I think it's going to create a very, very different world. So how do we decide who gets into Princeton or Harvard? <laughs> it's above my pay grade. <laughs> but, but, but seriously, I am curious about your thoughts on like the sorting function or the ranking has been a, a way, you know, to some people that has been important in the past. Like, who's, how do we know which kid is better than the other kid at, at whatever? Um, and I, I just can hear some listeners already wondering, like, well, I want a little bit of that maybe. Or is that just not worth keeping? The world we're heading into is provider agnostic. It doesn't matter if I learned what I learned at Harvard. It doesn't matter if I learned it on Wikipedia. It doesn't matter if I dreamed it last night. What we're talking about is, have you achieved the outcome? Don't care how you've done it. So the question's going to be, 
people's facility with outcomes. What's going to matter is the evaluation of people who've worked with those people. What's going, so I think we're talking about a world in which evaluation and micro-credentials and content and knowledge are going to be far more important than where you got them. The key, according to both Arthur Levine and Todd Rose, is that technology can now help track all the complexities of learning way better than in the past. So old ways of standardization aren't the only affordable option now. I believe that the future social contract for education works like this. The system has an obligation to do its best to create the flexibility and adaptability that can create a very good fit for every single kid, right, to the best of its ability. And it has an obligation to see the purpose as developing children, not sorting them, right? And then in return, we as people have an obligation to take responsibility for our choices, to help each other, right, because it can't just be the system, right, to, to bond together in terms of our shared values and shared vision, right? And, and the truth is, is that's what a democracy is supposed to be. We just have lost the habit of it because of these same jokers that literally convinced us that they were smarter than everybody else and that they could run the system. We've got to get back to our roots. Now, listen, there were plenty of bad things about those roots too, right? But let's make good on our founding values. Let's, let's strive for a more perfect union. Let's in, expand the we, and let's start that in education. But making change requires a whole different narrative about what education is for. And maybe one of the first steps to building that new narrative is letting go of the numbers that define us, like my GPA and my SAT scores. Do you want to reveal your dirty secret at long last, what your SAT score was? Yeah, it's on here, I take it? Yeah. Yeah, do you want to say it or me? Yeah, it looks like a 590 verbal, 620 math, which, if my math is good enough, is 1210, which is not good. Yeah, I just wanted so badly to break 1300, and I and I came just short. <laughs> and I've I've carried that with me as like a a weight around my neck ever since. Next time on Bootstraps, we'll look further at college admissions and who it really works for. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. This week's episode was part of the Bootstrap series that we're co-producing with the journalism nonprofit Open Campus. If you like the show, please take a minute to rate, review, or share. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter, at J.R. Young. Editing by Rob McGinley-Myers and Scott Smallwood. Thanks also to Rebecca Koenig. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.